220 episodes of Breaking Kayfabe, nary a bad one in the bunch, as far as I'm concerned, Barry. Would you agree? Oh, my God. Best wrestling podcast. Or, but we don't just talk about wrestling, right, Jeff? No, we don't just stick to wrestling. Ooh. Hold on. Hold on. Let me just check that off. We got that out of the way. Okay. So on this fine edition of Breaking Cafe by Bob Barry, the three best friends you did not know you had, we are going. Oh, Barry, we're going into this friggin' century. It's 2003. We are nothing if not topical. November 29th. 2003, Boston, Massachusetts, we are going ring of honor, Samoa Joe versus AJ Styles. Someone out there right now, and they just had a little stirring in the loins. Barry, what do you think? I th- I think a lot of loins are stirring currently, Jeff. Are yours stirring? Well, you know, they're-, they're Check. They're, Look yeah. at it. Mine are sort of uh, at a- uh, You know how it is. call your uh, you know, normal <laughs> stage. But anyway, besides It, it that, moved. Yeah, well, okay. We're going to be offering up- Barry, don't you love a good top 10? Certainly in this group, we uh, we definitely do. <laughs> Top 10 worst songs of the 1970s, Barry. Worst songs of the 1970s. We're going to be talking about a show. Barry, how often when you talk about a great show that you just watched, do the terms National Geographic come into play? Uh, Never. Okay, thank you. We're going to also be talking about adoption. Uh, and so we recently had someone reach out to us. Uh, let's talk a little about what happened when he and his wife adopted uh, a child. And uh, Barry and I are going to be giving our thoughts on that because we're nothing if not, you know, we're, we're well-rounded. We can talk about a lot of things. And because, you know, we go from talking about adoption, bad songs from the 70s. And then, Barry, we're going to talk about, oh, Barry, a book. Boy, would we love to get this writer on our podcast. Barry, as a matter of fact, has reached out to this person at the time of this fine recording and has not gotten a positive response yet. Barry, we're going to be talking about the book. The Haunted Vagina. I'm not making that up. That's where you chime in, Barry. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are so, nothing if not professional. The Haunted Vagina, Barry. What about that? Yeah, so we, uh, Jeff is 100%. So this is a legitimate book. He has got a, uh, the guy, the author's name is Carlton Mellick, I believe, the third. And he's the third, got, not the second. He's the third. I'm curious what one, one and two were like, you know, because we know that, that the third is certainly quirky, but, uh, we did reach out to him, and he is not granting interviews at this time, but he appreciates well, you know, the interest. His press, his press agent wants to hold off the stampede of media, apparently. I guess. So it's uh, it, as, we, as you and I were talking off air, his loss, because our people support things we talk about, our advertisers, et cetera. But my God, Jeff, how do you come up with the idea of having a, a vagina that somebody lives in and it's haunted? Like, how, how does that happen? Uh, you know, I have not run across <laughs> that yet. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. I just, but you know, in your head, like you're going, how does, how does somebody write this? So I, uh, yeah. You know, are you this- lying in bed one night and you're thinking, I got to come up with a new book topic. My, uh, my editor's pushing me. Uh, it's time for a new product. What can I do? What can I do here? And you're like, uh, I got it. It's a woman. She's got a vagina and it's haunted. But like, is that how it plays out? I don't know. I'm going to think that maybe there's some sort of hallucinogens might be involved. Possibly, possibly. Yeah. Barry, our match of the week. We are going to November 29th, 2003, Boston, Massachusetts, where I hear they have some mass holes there. <clears throat> Only attending the Red Sox game. I'm talking to you, Ron Lemieux. Uh, anyway, it's AJ Styles, a young AJ Styles versus a eh, relatively younger Samoa Joe. 
Ring of Honor action, Barry. You had a chance to watch this match. Tell the good folks what you thought of it. I do. And uh, so the cool thing is, too, we've seen Samoa Joe versus AJ Styles, Ring of Honor, TNA Impact. We've seen them work together in the WWE. I'm guessing maybe even in Japan without knowing. But, you know, you've got all these different promotions. So I love the fact that, you know, I, I want to say AJ and Samoa Joe in the last couple of years, we're, we're still having matches against each other. So it's kind of cool that you can go back 20 years, right? And you can look at some of their matches. This is a good match. I don't think this is the best match the two have ever had, but it is a good match. Uh, referee is Paul Turner. Now with AEW, talk about all the ROH defections to AEW. Nobody ever mentions Paul Turner, who actually does a really good job as Nobody referee. until now. Barry Rose gets credit for that. We're breaking it. We're breaking it here on Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry. CM Punk on commentary does a great job. He is solid. I, I know that I reached out to you and I never actually did the research to see, but whoever Punk's commentary partner is, I thought he was terrible. I don't know who it is. It's not, uh, you know, Nigel McGuinness or Ian Riccoboni or any of those guys, but whoever this is just didn't do it for me. The other thing I saw Joe's weight gain throughout the years, you know, you see Joe and uh, God knows where he is now. The WWE, I think has screwed him over multiple times and, but he's he's put on weight throughout the year, still moves around decent for a guy of his size. But you go back to these earlier matches and he was a thick, stocky guy, but he wasn't as big as he currently is or has been over the last few years. He looked great. AJ does a power bomb on Joe that I just thought had to be seen to be believed. It was just a thing of beauty. And then Joe does this front faced leg sweep on AJ and AJ's legs go out from under him and he lands. He basically breaks his fall with his face on the mat. You catch that move? I did. I thought that was great, too. And I, I realized professional wrestling at the end of the day is a work and, you know, all this. It's all predetermined. And as I'm watching this, I'm going, so how did AJ like work that? Like, how did in any way? Because your face is not the recommended place for you to take the bump. I'm just going to say that. It's not. And, and I, I got to tell you, I think he really did take the bump on his face. He gets a lot of credit for that. That was great. There is a, a series here of kicks and punches and back fists and elbows between the two guys that I want to say last for close to a minute. And we're talking, these guys are moving. This is like a flurry of just kicks and punches. AJ does win this with an enzugiri which is, I think it's something that he's also been doing in Japan and did it in the WWE also. But with Joe, it's great because Joe is there for, for every kick and every punch I thought was great. Joe also kicking out of the Styles Clash. And this was a, I always thought this was one of those protected kind of holds that, look, it's the guy's finisher and, and guys aren't going to kick out. And in the WWE, it was protected, I believe also in Impact and ROH. But I was surprised to see that here where Joe actually kicks out again. This is a great match. So there are two things. I, there's really one thing that I think doesn't elevate it to the next level for me. And I know this will be a shock for you, Jeff. The match is too short. Oh, what? Well, I'm sorry. What happened to Barry Rose? Yeah, Lou, Lou, there's somebody uh, pretending to be Barry here that uh, says he doesn't like a shorter match. So he's not saying that what he's saying. <laughs> He loves the short matches. He That'll never change. What he's saying is, I think this match would have been better served with an additional 10 minutes on it. Because I think this match goes about 15 minutes or so. I'm glad you said that because next week's match of the week uh, is a uh, hour and a half. 
uh, and yeah. it's all rest holds. Go ahead. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Go ahead. But with that, this is two guys, I think, at the top of their craft are certainly close to that peak point. And uh, I, I think if, if these two guys are going to tell a story and it's two guys that are chasing a very, because you look at the talent base of ROH at this stage as well. And really right around this time, they had, so this was some of the best wrestling in the U S that not a lot of people were actually seeing, which is a shame. But I, I think with a match that literally could be as epic as this match could be giving these guys an additional 10 minutes go, you know, instead of 15, maybe go 25. I think it adds a lot of importance to the match. So that's my only criticism. That being said, these are two of the best in the world at this stage. Yeah. Uh, first of all, a couple points. Uh, I want to thank Kevin Orcutt, our old friend uh, out in uh, Idaho, for recommending this match uh, to us. Solid recommendation, uh, Kev. I, as I was doing, uh, watching this match, doing a little background, doing a little research, I found out that, uh, wow, AJ Styles apparently grew up literally one town over from where I live. You know, Gainesville, Georgia is one town over from where I live in coming. So that was kind of interesting. So as I watched this match, and I did enjoy the match, uh, it was it was very good. And you can see both guys. They were stars in ROH, but you could see they were going to be players in the wrestling business for at least a decade after this, uh, which led me to the question. How First of all, it led me to a couple of questions. How the hell was Samoa Joe not made into a bigger deal yep. in Japan? Now, not not uh, I'm going to get to the WWE uh, and, and what they did, but how the hell was this guy after seeing a match like this? I'm like, why the hell didn't? And, you know, and still pro wrestling Noah was around like, you know, like uh, and groups like that. But New Japan, good Lord, as bad a time as it was for them around this time frame, how they could not figure out that they needed to bring this guy over and turn, you know, the two guys that I see as New Japan really having missed a boat on as far as not bringing them in and whether it was like some sort of contract situation, whether it was like they didn't know about him, who knows? But Samoa Joe and Walter, I will say, are the two guys that I think they really missed the boat on. What do you think about that, Bear? Yeah, so I, it, what's even going on with Walter at this stage? Do you have any idea? I have no clue because you're the one of the two of us that still watches the WWE. Well, so. I, well the, so the reason I'm asking you is he's completely MIA as far as I know. I haven't seen hide nor hair of Walter since he dropped the title to uh, – the, the Russian guy, I was going to, with Ilya and something, I don't know. Dragonovich or Dragonovich, like Ilya, yeah. Dragon, something, but, and that guy was great, but, and I haven't been watching the UK version of NXT. Maybe he is somehow on that show, but he drops the NXT title and then they don't do anything with him. And I realize there's a lot of the WWE right now between all of the layoffs, the firings, the pushing of guys you've never heard of. So they've gone in a different direction. I only hope that Walter's not bound by some horrific contract that we can see him in Japan or we can see him somewhere else because I think he would just be the greatest thing ever. So to your point, Jeff, what was your point again? <laughs> My point, and I did have one, <laughs> uh, was that uh, I can't believe that Samoa Joe wasn't brought over to New Japan and turned into because, you know, here is he completely well-rounded and, you know, does he have a couple of rough spots? Maybe he was still a younger guy, but, you know, like. I sit there and, you know, the first time I saw Walter, I was like, oh, this, this guy's going to be a fucking star. You know, like, how yeah. how is this guy not being? And this was when he was still just working in Europe. And I'm like, how are they not bringing him into Japan? My God, this guy is the freaking reincarnation of, like, the uh, bastard son of uh, Fritz von Erich and Johnny Valentine, for God's sakes, which 
Oh my God, that'd be a weird mixture, wouldn't it? But anyway, I, I think he could have been, Walter could have been a huge star or maybe he still will be, but Samoa Joe with his style, you know, hard hitting style, that's the kind of shit the Japanese fans love. And I really can't believe they missed a boat. Yeah, and they really did miss the boat with that. But, you know, look, look, that could have been Joe, too. Maybe Joe actually wanted to be a star for because he, he was a big deal in Impact when Impact was kind of relevant as well. So maybe Joe said, you know what, I want to be a big star in this country and maybe not go over there. But to that same token, if if one of the companies had offered him good money, right, of course, he's going to take it. So I do yeah. agree with you then. You're right. So so the next question uh, that we kind of touched on briefly was. Why would it have taken the WWE? And we, of course, all know that they're geniuses there. But how could you have been exposed to a match like this? And let's be honest. You know these guys are, are the suits up in the offices. They're watching this kind of shit, and they were watching this kind of shit back then. How could you not watch this match and say to yourself, yeah, we need to sign these two guys. Yeah, so we need to have these two guys on board. So here's the weird thing. So a guy like AJ Styles had a career. Let's say he was in the business for 20 years before he went up to the WWE, right? And when he got to the WWE, he made a great impact. I believe he debuted at the Royal Rumble, had a great showing, and then he went on a run and, you know, champion and everything. And apparently, if I remember reading it correctly from The Observer, Vince McMahon was really impressed with AJ Styles and really liked his work and wanted to sign more guys like AJ Styles. And what that said to me was, why weren't you watching him for the last 20 years? Like he had to get to a WWE ring for you to understand how good this guy was. That makes me wonder what the process is. I know guys like Jim Ross and Jerry Briscoe for years were out scouting talent and bringing them to the WWE. Does Vince not do that? Does Vince not see a tape of a guy in Impact or a guy in AEW? Is he not seeing any of these guys? And then somebody's got to say, hey, Vince, there's this great wrestler out there who's been around for 20 fucking years, has had five-star matches all across the entire country, the entire world. Maybe we should sign him, but Vince doesn't see that or doesn't know about that? Well, you know, there's a, a time when you're so far high up on the throne that if you can't see, uh, I'm going to use a couple different euphemisms here or, or, or things, uh, the forest for the trees, you know, like if you're so fucking high up there in your tower that you can't be told, Hey, this is a guy you need to fucking sit down for 10 minutes and watch this guy because he can have a huge impact for our company. And in this business, then I'm sorry, I can't help you. And, you know, there's a lot of things about Vince McMahon. I've said it before that are incredibly intelligent, incredibly smart. He's obviously an incredibly gifted promoter, but if he's missing the boat on guys this talented, I don't know what to say, you know? So, uh, by the way, I mean, Sweet Lou chiming in that Walter had appeared uh, in, uh, I believe it was Zero One, and I know, you know, I believe Samoa Joe might have appeared in one of the smaller promotions, too. I'm talking, like, New Japan, All Japan, uh, Noah, one of those kind of promotions, just so, you know, those of you out there listening going, oh, well, Walter appeared in several minor promotions. And no, I'm not talking about the minor promotions. I'm talking about the big ones. So that's what I meant. Uh, it's a very hard-hitting brawl. Uh, the guys, very, oh, very, very stiff shots in this match. Ooh. Oh, stiff. But again, when they, it, the beauty of these stiff shots, the way that they're being sold. You could have taken these two guys and you could have put them. Like the truth is, like we we used to say this all the time. You didn't say it, Jeff, but I think the rest the rest of the wrestling universe said it. That when you see guys on an independent level 
an independent in this country being anything other than the WWE, you would always say, boy, they should bring these guys to the WWE. They'll just, you know what would have happened? They would have put a stupid gimmick on these two. Their matches would have been six minutes with, with commercial interruptions. And then, you know, advertisements for Domino's right after, right? So yeah. it, it wouldn't have been AJ, mattered. the Red Rooster Styles or something like that, I'm sure. Yeah. But uh, no, this is, a, this is a good match, uh, as Barry said. Uh, could it have been stretched out another five or ten minutes? That's very fair, I think. Uh, Kevin Orcutt, thank you for the recommendation. Now, Kevin, Barry's going to join me on this. Don't be sending us 20 matches to watch in the next uh, four days because <laughs> it's not going to happen. But Can't we do it. Yeah, we appreciate yeah. this recommendation. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll put the uh, link to this match up on our group, uh, Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry. As Barry says, if you're not a member, why aren't you? What the hell's the matter with you? So uh, we do appreciate Kevin that reached out, uh, suggesting that we watch this match, and we hope you guys enjoy it when we post a link on our Facebook group. Barry, I know if there's one thing that you love, it's a good top 10 list. Am I correct, my man? If it's a good top 10 list, you're 100% correct, my man. Well, you're correct, but also incorrect, because first of all, this is not food-related. Oh, uh -oh. my. We're going to the pages of Rolling Stone magazine. Boy, you remember when Rolling Stone used to be a good magazine, Barry? What was that, the late 60s? <laughs> Before they got involved with the Hall of Fame? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. when it was good. So what we have here is a reader's poll, so maybe we can't completely blame the good folks uh, on the editorial board. At Rolling Stone, but the readers coming up, Barry, the 10 worst songs of the 1970s. Oh, the 70s, Barry. Yeah, it's, it's really funny because the 1970s had some of the worst movie ever foisted upon the public, but there were some great stuff, too. I mean, am I correct there? Yeah, so they're your movies or music? No, music. Okay, you just said movie for some reason. Well, what the hell did I mean? Don't yeah. listen to what I say, listen to what I mean. All right. So, yeah, there was a but with that. Yeah, there was some great stuff in the 70s. I think the second half of the 70s, I enjoyed a little bit more. However, you're right about the shit that was out. There was some really bad songs. All right. Let's examine what the readers of Rolling Stone magazine picked as the 10 count them 10 worst songs of the 1970s. By the way, the, the song that immediately popped into my mind when when I saw the headline is absolutely on the list. And we're getting there in a second. So, number 10, I got to say a, a song that, uh, you know, if I'm thinking the 10 worst songs of the 1970s, this one doesn't necessarily pop into my mind. Uh, an artist lost way too young. It's Maya Rudolph's mom, Minnie Ripperton, with Loving You. Barry, what do you think? That They voted that as one of the 10 worst songs yeah, of the 1970s? Yeah, I, I, I definitely don't see this being, you know, anywhere near a top 10 worst song category. No, First no. Off, Vocally, she's amazing. Yes, absolutely, too. So I don't see any issue with this song. I, I'm, I, I am shocked that this song would make the list. The only thing I would say about this song is that this song was so uber popular in the 1970s, you couldn't escape it in the 70s. It was on every radio station all day long for years. That would be the only criticism. Other than that, I mean, her voice was absolutely incredible. Yeah, and she does, uh, I will say, in fairness, she does a little bit of the vocal gymnastics. First time we've ever used that expression. Oh. Uh, you know, Whitney Houston-esque on the vocal gymnastics. Because she, Barry, she can hit some notes on this song that, uh, you know, I think I think she may go higher than, like, Mariah Carey uh, on this song. What do you think? So is that a criticism of the song? No, no, no. no. I I'm, saying, oh. I'm saying the way, first of all, I'm not a fan 
I do like some Whitney Houston songs. I don't like the songs where she does the vocal gymnastics, where it's like, let me see how high I can go yeah, so I yeah. can impress the audience. And that's and all. I don't it, necessarily it, think that Minnie yeah. Ripperton was doing that on this song, but she does do the vocal gymnastics. Yeah, I don't. I agree with you on that. I think Whitney was doing it to show off, the same as Mariah Carey. But Minnie Ripperton, I didn't get that. I just thought this was a. I actually thought this was a nice, gentle love song. The song is called "Loving You," and she comes across. Yeah, she, so she does vocal gymnastics, but doesn't do it in this aggressive way that, say, Whitney Houston does it. Because Whitney could be really aggressive with that shit, which was Mariah Carey. It's all showing off. I didn't get that vibe from Minnie, uh, Minnie Ripperton at all. Yeah, and Minnie Ripperton, unfortunately, lost to cancer uh, in 1979 at the age of 31. Oh. Uh, just horrible, Barry. So next, number nine. Now here, Barry, a song that definitely belongs on the list. Morris Albert Feelings. Oh, nothing more. Than, oh, yeah. It's, it's just horrifying. Oh, this my song. God. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, they said so the readers got this one right. That's is Morris Albert is the guy. Yes. I never in a million years would have ever guessed. Did that, but I Chris Zaha ever have feelings on the onset uh, playlist? What do you think? <laughs> Did anybody at any point ever have those feelings? This is a horrible song, feelings. This, this would be. People talk now about America and, and uh, you know, woke, I believe, is the official term. The song feelings would certainly lead into some sort of wussification of the world because it's literally the the it's just a horrific song. It's just a terrible, terrible song. And I, I can't stand it. I'm going to put it out there. I want Chris to post a selfie video of him singing the lyrics to feelings and post it in our group challenge. Posted, Chris. Uh, it's your move. Number eight, Barry. Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods. Billy, don't be a hero. Ah, uh, so it's a bad. Yes, it's a bad song. So there were a lot of these songs in the 1970s, which were these one-hit wonders that were supposedly telling a story, and the bands were very generic. This would. This absolutely falls into it. There is something perverse about Billy Don't Be a Hero and how bad it is, but the fact that I don't hate it, and the fact that I, I do find it kind of oddly engaging in its own way, but it's terrible. The vocals are bad. I think the music's bad. The lyrics are horrific. It's, uh, it's third grade lyrics at best, but I still think the song is kind of fun and kind of catchy. I would never listen to it, but at the same time, I don't hate it. Billy, don't be a hero. Come back and make me your wife. Oh, <laughs> so little trivia contest, Barry. Do you know who wrote the song, Billy, don't be a hero? Uh, Marjo Gortner wrote it. That was a good guess. Thank you. A I don't know why. Famous, I, yeah. famous evangelist Marjo Gortner, who appeared as the uh, the National Guard guy in the movie Earthquake. But uh, how, I, how I fucking plucked that obscure trivia out of my head, I don't know. No, in fact, it was written by the U.P. Uh, UK power pop group Paper Lace, famous what? for what song? Mary? Paper Lace sang. Paper Lace, they sang. Uh, I'm not in the love. night. Chicago, the died. night Chicago. Remember that song? I do. I actually like that song too. Yeah, I don't know if that song's on the list or not. Quite frankly, uh, I don't think anybody wants to hear me sing any more of that song. Number seven. Oh my God, Barry. You know, when you talk about songs that get overplayed and just like beaten down in your head, does it get any worse 
than Terry Jack's Season in the Sun. No. Seasons in the Sun. We had joy. We had fun. We had fun. We had we seasons had... in the sun. And he had a horrible oh voice. Yes. Nasally, the lyrics were, again, wussification of the world. What kind of fucking person sings this song? Like, it's just terrible. Terrible song. But again, it looked, somebody responded to this because we never heard from Terry Applejacks again. This was it. One and done. Who wrote this song, Barry? Because you'll know the name. The same guys who wrote that other song in England, the powerhouse oh. do it now. Uh, Poet Rod McEwen. Rod. Boom. Same guy that also wrote, I baked a cake and left out in the rain, right? Arthur Park. Yeah. Yeah. He did MacArthur Park too, I think, didn't he? Uh, no, that was Jimmy Webb. Okay. Thank okay. you, Sweet Lou, coming in. Uh, number six. Sweet, uh, Sweet Lou. And you know he didn't Google that, Jeff. You know that was right <laughs> off the top. You no, know, that's really disturbing. About as uh, disturbing as me uh, pulling out the night Chicago died uh, <laughs> out of my head. So number six, here's another song, Barry, that you literally, and you'll see what I did here, you could not escape from Barry. Oh, it's the Pina Colada song by Rupert Holmes. Yeah, it's a, look, this is a bad song. I will tell you at the time, this song was super popular. It was number one for weeks or months. Uh, I I actually got to be, what, 79 or 80 when this song Yeah, it was like right 79? on the cusp of the end of the decade. Yeah, it was right. Exactly. It was right on the cusp of the end of the decade. And it's a, again, there's nothing to this song. It's just, it's, it's the most plain, boring vanilla ice cream you would ever get. I know vanilla can be good, but this is the most flavorless of all the vanillas. Like, there's just nothing there. But it was an easy song to listen to. And over the years, I won't say I've grown to like it, but my dislike has diminished greatly. If it's on, sure. And I, I want to say, didn't they, Sweet Lou, right off the top of your head, weren't they doing some sort of Broadway show and it was built around this song? Oh, you don't know the answer to that one, do you? <laughs> Well, I know that that Rupert Holmes has composed some Broadway or stage musicals. He's also been a like a writer of uh, screenplays as well. Had another hit in 1980 with the song "Hymn," which is actually a better song. I, it's painting with Dave, damn praise, but uh, you know, "Hymn" was a good song about a guy that basically finds that his uh, his old lady's cheating on him. But uh, yeah, this one. To me, was the 70s version of Bertie Higgins and Key Largo. What do you think, Barry? Oh, so, which is a better song, though, I think, Bertie Higgins and Key Largo. But, yeah, there, I see that comparison. It's almost got the same type of tone to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Barry, I mentioned uh, as we started recording this particular segment that there was one song that I absolutely, by God, knew was going to be on this list. Shout out to you, Nancy Moles. Number five, the Captain and Tennille, Muskrat Love. Oh, my God. Oh, my. So, first off, who is Nancy Moles? Uh, that's my friend that uh, we, she'll get the inside reference on that joke, please. Is she a listener? Is she a faithful yeah. listener? Well, I actually, she's a Patreon subscriber. Thank you. Then she much. is. Absolutely. Nancy, thank you and welcome. It's a pleasure to meet you. Shitty song. Absolutely. Muskrat Love. Horrible. Muskrat Susie, yes. Muskrat Sam, do the jitterbug anyway. Oh, my God. Please. You know the what? worst part about that song, Jeff? The, was... When they do the little chittering? No, no. Well, yeah. oh, oh, my God, the chittering. Oh, my God. That somebody said this is a good idea, first off, that we should do a, a one like this. 
But the other aspect is they were coming off their big hit, right? Yeah, love will keep us together. That was a gigantic monster Huge. of a hit. This was the follow-up to love yeah. will keep us together. So you talk about being at the very top to delivering this piece of shit, which I think at that point probably killed their career. And then I know when the captain died a couple of years ago or three years ago, kayfabe was broken because apparently he was kind of a dick in real life. And uh, Tennille had yeah. actually treated yeah, Tony Tennille very badly, apparently treated him like shit. And she was such a wonderful person that even though he was dying, she went and took care of him, which says yeah. a lot about her. Yeah. So a great little uh, storyline uh, that's mentioned in the article here that uh, apparently the captain and Tennille played it at the White House in 1976 when Queen Elizabeth II came for a visit. Uh, the article says it's unclear why the Ford administration thought that was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty funny. So, yeah, this is a completely horrific tune. Uh, this might actually, uh, it probably should have been in the top three, quite frankly. Uh, also, absolutely belonging in the top three for the sheer horrific nature of it. Talk about your one-hit wonders, Barry. All I got to do is say the name Debbie Boone. Oh, yeah. And there was no way to escape this either. This was in every radio station, TV shows, every dentist office, every elevator you got into. And Debbie Boone, obviously the daughter of Pat Boone, who had been a big star, I think, in the 50s and 60s. And uh, yeah, this is uh, just a horrific song. And then, of course, she I think she did have a follow up to this song. But that went nowhere. And then go figure. She disappeared off the face of the earth. And, you know, interestingly, I don't I, I'm not exactly sure on this. Maybe Sweet Lou can correct me if I'm incorrect, uh, which I almost never am, Barry. <clears throat> Check. I don't think the Debbie Boone version was the version that was sung in the movie. I mean, I know Dee Dee Khan was the star of the movie. I know it wasn't her singing, but I think it was somebody else. And Debbie Boone's cover version of the song that was in the movie, You Light Up Your uh, My Life, which, by the way, is a horrible movie also. Uh, but it was her version. Stayed at number one 10 weeks, Barry. 10 wow. weeks. The poor listeners in the 70s of Casey Kasem's American Top 40 had to listen to this song be the number one song in the country. Good Lord. So little tidbits to throw at you regarding this song, Barry. The song was written by a guy named Joe Brooks. Barry arrested in 2009 on charges that he lured 11 women to his apartment with the promise of a movie audition, then sexually assaulted them. He committed suicide before going to trial. Around the same time this was all going down, his son Nicholas was arrested for murdering his girlfriend. Wow. These How old was this guy? How old was this guy luring 11 women? Was he like 90? I don't know, but women? these are good reasons not to ever listen to this song again if yeah, you have the opportunity. So next, Barry, number three. Paul Anka, heaven, my baby. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. These are some bad songs, Barry. These are. Look, this is the one list we're actually agreeing with for the most part. That, boy, that's a bad. This, But this was, there. What, what's the category for these songs? Because they're all in the same category. Like, whatever it is. Yeah. Is it easy listening? Is it yacht well, rock I think in the seventies? Stuff that was like pop music, like stuff that would have because all these songs that were on the top forty, you know. She's uh, having amazing. my baby. Oh, yeah. what a lovely way to say how much you love me. That's exactly why she's having your baby because she. <laughs> it's a lovely way to say that she loved you. That's why she's going to give birth. Exactly. Yeah. Lou, by the way, let me very quickly pointing out that the lyrics uh, were by uh, Casey. I believe it's Casey Sizzik. 
was the person that did the original version of You Light Up My Life. I just want to make that clear. So getting back to Paul Anka, let me just say, although this song is horrible, I, I don't think it's necessarily the third worst song in the uh, uh, of the decade. I think, yeah, You Light Up My Life and uh, Muskrat Love worse than this song. But Paul Anka, first of all, uh, a, a guy that's an incredible songwriter, uh, and he was the guy, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that wrote the Tonight Show song. Uh, when Johnny Carson's on the top uh, on the uh, Tonight Show. Think about if you get residuals for every time the theme to the Tonight Show is played, and Johnny Carson was the host for, what, 25 years, something like that? At least so years. every single night Johnny Carson's show came on and those and that music uh, played, Paul Anka got a residual check. What kind of bank did Paul Anka fucking make? Holy shit. You know who's making bank right now? Danny Elfman, who, re- who did the Simpsons theme. So. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the way to go. And by the way, yes, if you passed way. him on the street, would anyone know who Danny Elfman was? No, you know yeah. that's why it's writing. That's the uh, the money. So yeah, uh, but no, this is a pretty uh, horrific song. Uh, let me just see here. Uh, da, da, da. An Uber. The the article says an Uber saccharine song about a man overjoyed about the news that his wife is pregnant. The song hit home for a lot of Americans, and it gave Paul Inka his first number one. Since 1959, Barry. Wow, that was like a, a like a 15 year absence. Uh, so anyway, uh, number two. Oh, Barry. Ugh. Now this one, this one belongs in the top three. Starland Vocal Band, Barry. Afternoon, gonna grab my baby, gonna hold her tight, gonna grab some afternoon delight. Barry, do you like a little afternoon delight? I, Jeff, I would take delight in the afternoon at 3 a.m. Anytime delight would be offered. Like when to you're me, spooning, Jeff. it's spooning at 3 a.m. Jeff, I would at this stage of my life, any delight at any given moment, I would. Would be. you need someone else there with you? It's preferable, but it isn't, it isn't mandatory. Okay. So <laughs> exactly. Great Bill Murray line when they were doing weekend update him and Jane Curtin. And she asked Bill, she goes, when were you, what age were you when you lost your virginity? And he said, nine. And Jane Curtin goes, nine? Wow, that's really young. Uh, how old was your partner? And Bill Murray's line was, oh, you mean with someone else? <laughs> Bill Murray, so, still the funniest guy. So what I like about the inclusion of this song on this list, this was, when I was a kid growing up, my most hated song of all time. I probably have changed that because it, now it would certainly be that Bobby McFerrin song that I fucking hate. But not this, eligible because that's an 80s song, but go it ahead. is uh, 80s, 90s, but doesn't matter. It's still, the, in my opinion, the worst song of all time. But I hated this song. And uh, this was I'm going to say this was around 1975, Jeff, somewhere in that neighborhood. 76. That, you were close. 76. And this song, you they had their own fucking TV show. Yes. For a few months. Horrible show, by the way. Based off of one song. They had a television show and it was a variety show where they would come on and they would harmonize every week. And they would also sing the same fucking song every week. It was a terrible song, right? <laughs> First of all, it was a CBS show. I remember that. So yeah, just so your memory is better in mind. Yeah. So let me point out a couple things. First of all, both couples, uh, there were two couples that were, uh, you know, and uh, they sang, uh, you know, the song to each other, both divorced now, which uh, karma. Uh, number two that I want to point out, Barry Karma. <laughs> yeah, for what Karma. they thrust upon us, Starland Vocal Band winning the Grammy for Best New Artist. Guess who they beat out for the award? So it's 1976. Somebody is emerging in 76. 
I don't know, but I know it's going to be embarrassing. One of them pisses me off. The other one's going to piss you off. Okay. Go for it. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Wow. And the Ramones. Wow. I'm pissed off on both. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but wow. The good, uh, the good, sensible people in the Academy said, oh, no, let's go with the group that's talking about getting a little bit during the afternoon. I mean, not that any of us are opposed to that, but oh, my God, what a horrific song. So you're asking yourself, people, what song could be worse than all these other songs that we listed? And I will say, Barry, this was a horrific, horrific song. At number one, Barry, any guesses, by the way? No, I, I would have said the Starland vocal, which, again, my most hated song of the 70s. But no, you got me. But they're, oh, shit. Uh, no, I don't know. Lou, do you have a number guess? Number one. I mean, for a craptastic decade of music like the 70s, I'm going to say sometimes when we touch. That's a good one. That's a good Jeff, one. But I think can I, can I put a caveat on Dan this Hill. as well? What's that? You have not put forth any disco music whatsoever. There's not been one disco nope. song on this list. So all you people waiting to hear the Bee Gees, no, no. Uh, uh, you waiting to hear George McRae, no. I will survive. No, that hey, was not hey. George McRae. That no, was Gloria right. Gaynor, but I digress. However, you are correct in one aspect, Mr. Rose. Uh -oh. It is a song that has disco in the title. Oh, it's Rick fucking D's. Disco duck. Disco duck. Disco Disco duck. Hey, mama. Oh, my God, Barry. Disco fucking duck. Yeah, so terrible songs. So the 70s were also known for all these gimmick songs because you had the CB song. Remember that one? Yep. You had Streakin' by a guy named Ray Stevens. Who was a guy that had done some good solid songs and he just does this gimmick song about streaking and, and made a zillion money. dollars. Right. <laughs> exactly. Genius. Cause then he makes more money and uh, right. you hussy. Yeah. So there, the seventies were, there were some really, so it, it look, disco duck is a, but it's not even a song to me, Jeff. It's, I realize it, it is a song, but it's to me, it's just a gimmick. I don't, I, you know what I mean? It's like a goofy gimmick song, but, it was number one, right? Didn't it? It was top of the charts. Number one in 1976 in the Hot 100. Oh, oh my God. And the guy was a DJ in Memphis. He ends up getting a job in LA. He was out in LA for like 30 plus years, yeah. I think, to DJ. And he might have done his own version of uh, the top 40 that wasn't Casey Kasem related. So, uh, oh, yeah, Barry. So, uh, for all the good that came out of the 70s, you know, uh, all the classic rock, uh, there were some completely horrific songs also, Barry. There were Rick Dees' daughter, too. I saw a photo of her at some point, and she was absolutely spectacular. She was absolutely beautiful. He married an African-American woman, and they he had a daughter with her. And I got to tell you, the daughter is just the most beautiful thing. I, I'm trying to find a photo of her. But with that as well, too, he was. Rick Dees was a DJ, as you mentioned, in L.A. for decades. and uh, But this song, but wasn't there actually... What, didn't he have like the Rick D's band? Like he, he had actually put together a band to do this song, which this seems like something you would lay a couple of tracks down in a studio and then add this other. Listen like, to you. To look, look at you, Mr. Oh, Mookie. yeah, professional here. Laying some tracks down. Breaking kayfabe. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, look, there's I, I just don't know if this is worse than any of the other horrible songs of the the gimmick songs of the 70s. But. 
they were all bad. They're all horrific. So yeah. Do you have, as we wrap up this segment, what is your all time worst song of the seventies? Oh, let's just say out of this list, what would you say would be, in your opinion, should be number one? Uh, feelings. Really? Okay. Or, oh my God, Jeff. That is the good. Just no, no. Cause really? I'm going muskrat love because the part Which where the terrible. muskrats are chittering and they put that in the song that kills it for me. I got to ask you a favor. Can you try to work in the word chittering to our show every week? <laughs> is there a chance you'll do this, please? Because I really like that's the second yeah. time you've said chittering, and I really enjoy this. <laughs> so, Barry, when you're looking for a new show, you're like, okay, I've, I've binge watched this one. Now it's time. Uh, you know, I'll text my friends. Who's got something they can recommend to me? Hey, you know, you, you go to your, uh, your Netflix, you go to your HBO Max, maybe you go to, uh, you know, uh, something else, uh, your Amazon Prime. What's a good show? You know where you usually don't go for a good quality program, Barry? National Geographic Channel. Oh, okay. But I happened to uh, DVR, and I watched the first three episodes, and then I started streaming Barry Hot Zone Anthrax. And I told you about this show, and as I began to, it got a really solid review on the IMDb uh, scale. It got, uh, I think, like, I want to say eight or something like that, which, you know, that's a very, very good uh, score. But as I watched the show, I said, you know, and, and I told you about it. I said, this is not a show that's got somebody that, you know, like uh, Tom Cruise, Matt Damon, Brad Pitt. We are going to go, oh, shit. Yeah, I knew who that guy is. But it's got uh, Daniel Day Kim. Uh, it's got Dylan Baker. It's got guys that you'll go, oh, fuck, yeah, I know who that guy is. You know, you don't know the name, but once you see his face. It's like somebody that you immediately recognize. So Hot Zone Anthrax is a dramatized story about the anthrax attack uh, in New York and in Boca Raton at the uh, the National Enquirer uh, offices uh, right after the 9-11 attacks. Barry, are you familiar? Do you remember back then when the anthrax scare was going on? Well, Jeff, you ready to have your mind blown? Oh, uh, let me tell you, you worked at the uh, <sighs> Enquirer back then? No, so it, this was actually it's not even funny in this one, so I can't make a lot of jokes. So the anthrax scare occurred really right after 9-11. I want to say it was two or three months. I forget exactly what the time frame was. And anthrax was sent to Tom Brokaw at NBC. Yes, that's, that, and that's part of the storyline. My wife worked on the same floor as Tom Brokaw, and I would take Zach to NBC five days a week so she could feed him. We lived four blocks away from Rockefeller Center. So as it turned out, it was Tom Brokaw's assistant that actually caught anthrax. I don't know if the book covers that, but it was Yeah, Tom no, no, the story okay. does. So Tom Brokaw's assistant actually caught anthrax. And because myself, Zach, who was under a year, and my wife had all been on the same floor, we had to go get tested for anthrax. So we go to get tested, and uh, it, it sucks. But at the same time, when you have a an infant, it really sucks, right? Like you're yeah. really fucking livid. So I had to hold Zach and they, they have to do a swab and it's basically putting a long Q-tip all the way down your throat to do a throat swab. And little babies don't like that. And I remember sitting there and I was really angry. I was really like livid. And then you find out who the fucking anthrax guy was, right? Because yeah, obviously- No spoilers. Yeah, no, no spoilers, spoilers but- but at the same time, it wasn't initially who everybody thought it was going to be. And when we left that day, we actually had to take medicine, even though because we wouldn't get the results right away. So we had to start on some sort of medicine right away. And then it came back that we didn't have it. 
And it was at that point when the discussions about us moving out of New York City started occurring and we did move out of New York City. So and I'm perfectly understandable, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it sucked. It's uh, I always felt I should share. I always felt guilty. I never talk about this and maybe at some point I will. But I was in New York when 9-11 occurred. I wasn't far away. Uh, it, it was a life changing event on and just every fucking level. And it was devastating. And the event was devastating. What occurred the months after were equally as devastating because you had to live in the city where, you know, there was just a thousand people missing. I forget what the number was. And it was really sad. And uh, it, it was impactful on so many different, you know, so many different areas. So it was not something I generally talk about, but I always felt guilty about leaving New York. And the day that we moved, when we left New York, I don't know if I was depressed, but I was really saddened. Like I was super melancholy and I felt like I was deserting the city that, you know, that I guess had been supporting me and I shouldn't be. It's a very bizarre feeling, but I, it was it was a tough time between 9-11 anthrax. We also had the big brownout where we had it was August of that year and there was this massive power outage and we had no power for over 24 hours, 36 hours. And again, you learn to deal, but when you've got a young child, you know, it changes everything that you do. Yeah. So yeah, tough stuff. Yeah. And, uh, as I was going through, uh, Daniel day, Kim, uh, was, uh, on the TV show lost for those of you, uh, who uh, are followers or followed that program. The other name, very interesting. You, you brought up that Tom Brokaw, uh, this had an effect on him. Tom Brokaw on the show played by Harry Hamlin. Wow. Yeah. Harry Hamlin, uh, formerly, uh, I don't know if they're still. I was married to Ursula Andrus for a while when she was like, uh, when he was in his twenties, he yeah. hooked up with Ursula Andrus, but he plays Tom Brokaw. And it's funny because the accent is like, like if you close your eyes, man, he has Tom Brokaw dead on. But anyway, uh, without going into the spoilers, uh, for those of you that aren't aware of the story, uh, it follows the FBI's investigation into who actually perpetrated the anthrax scare, uh, who sent the, uh, the mail out to not only the national Enquirer but to, uh, I think it was the NBC, it was CBS, because uh, Dan, somebody on Dan Rather's staff at least uh, had something mailed to them. Uh, it went to the New York Post. Uh, right. And uh, so, yeah, it was extremely impactful. But this is not like ridiculously sensationalized. And uh, when uh, the person who was responsible is revealed, there is a discovery that this person may have had certain mental health issues, uh, that he may have been schizophrenic. But, you know, seeing the way that, uh, just like literally, it's like uh, we've talked about this before, Barry, the pebble dropped in the lake or the pond and the ripple effects that happen. So here he does this. And uh, first of all, you got the guy that picked up the mail. You've got to get because they found out the spores of anthrax could go through the envelope. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's how people breathe it in. This is not something where you open it up and, uh, oh, that's how it got infected. This was going through the the envelope itself. And uh, then, you know, like you go into the postal, uh, you know, the, the facility and the people there that were impacted and a couple people in this one facility, it was somewhere in New Jersey and how the, there were a couple people that died and, you know, how they're trying to follow basically the trail of victims to find out where this all led back to. And, you know, of course, naturally, after the 9-11 attacks, the, the immediate assumption was, oh, you know, this is, uh, you know, got to be uh, somebody from Iraq or Iran. And how they unraveled the fact that it it was not was uh, pretty compelling, and it really shows the work that you know not just the FBI but the biologists, the biochemists, 
that are dealing with this, the uh, the epidemiologist. That is definitely the first time we've ever used the word epidemiologist. That's a good word. Show. Yes, yeah. that's a very good right? triple word score too. Uh, yeah. uh, but anyway, on the National Geographic or it's streaming now because I think the show actually aired. I want to say like maybe last month. So uh, if you do the old uh, search for the Hot Zone Anthrax, wow, huge thumbs up, Barry. I will tell you, especially if you live through it. Uh, you know, this is something I think you might want to definitely check out, although the memories might be still uh, slightly painful. A show that I can definitely recommend, The Hot Zone Anthrax. So, Barry, the other day, you and I uh, got a, a private message from, I believe, uh, you told me it was Steve Walker. And uh, Steve was talking about recently the comments that we had made. It all gets lost in the wash now, Barry. I don't know if it's on the Patreon or on the regular uh, podcast, but we were talking about uh, no, it was on the Patreon because we were talking about the uh, the woman, the unsolved mysteries whose uh, child had disappeared. And I made a comment about, you know, if you, if you have a problem with your child, just put the damn, you know, put the right. kid up for adoption. And so then Steve responded, told us a very heartfelt story about uh, he and his wife ad- adopting uh, a child and stuff like that. And uh, first of all, Steve, thanks for, very much for those comments. Uh, you know, it's it's nice to hear that, you know, things that we are saying are resonating with people. But, you know, Barry, it got me thinking of an adoption story uh, that's slightly personal to me, because of course, uh, Barry knows this, I don't know if everyone that's listening to this knows this, but I adopted my two children uh, when I married my wife. At the time I adopted them, I think, uh, I wanna say Andy was maybe 11, 12, and my daughter was nine or 10, somewhere in that general ballpark. And, you know, we went through the whole uh, ceremony with the judge signing. And I remember one of the questions uh, the judge asked me, Barry, was, uh, uh, will you make them heir to your uh, estate or, you know, your, and, and I said, yes, yes, they're now heirs to my vast fortune. Uh, now, now heirs to my vast fortune from the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network, Barry. So, you know, and a lot of people have told me, oh, it's great that you, uh, you adopted the kids and stuff like that. Yeah. Like I, I didn't have another choice. First of all, not only did I love their mother, I loved them. And, you know, I, I've often heard it said that, uh, you know, and, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm going to say, Barry, because I know that you love Zach and Zoe as much as anyone ever could. But, you know, something that was pointed out to me was somebody that adopts a child, you're basically adopting and taking it on yourself or with your spouse to essentially raise someone else's child, to give your love to some, you know, a child that somebody else brought in the world. And I mentioned, you know, my my niece Scarlett and her husband Stephen, uh, that that they adopted two children. And, you know, I think that's fantastic. And I remember one time hearing Barry, I was at work one day and I was talking to a guy uh who who was at the time a good friend of mine that I've kind of lost touch with. But uh, you know, and I was talk I guess I just recently adopted my kids and and he came in and was talking about something that had happened with his own children. And he made the comment to me, I really couldn't believe he said this. And he said, well, you know, you really, you you couldn't understand because, you know, they're not your kids. And I remember thinking, what, are you fucking kidding me? Well, do you you think because, you know, you and your wife had your own children that that somehow I love my children less? Are you really going to put that on me? You know, just, I I thought it was a pretty unbelievable, by the way, not somebody in the group. I'm not going to, you know, call anybody out to task for that, Barry. But, uh, you know. Adoption and adopting a child is is something that, you know, is really, and I'm not doing this to pat myself on the back, people like Steve, uh, you know, and his wife that, that did that and, and people that adopt children, 
you kind of have to have a very special mindset and, and realize, you know, that that you're like I said, you're raising someone else's child and you're agreeing to raise someone else's child bear. So first off, the person that said that to you, it, even we could get angry with that person, Jeff. But if you're that fucking stupid, if you're that it was a Miami Hurricanes fan, I'm just going to say that. <laughs> all right. But I mean, if you if you make an, a comment as ignorant as that it first off. I'm going to assume that that person, and I have a feeling who we're talking about, but I also, I would assume that that person has never had a child. That person has never owned an animal. No, no. He and his wife had three kids. Seriously? Yeah, but somehow what he was saying was the love for a child that a parent has, you know, like you and and Jennifer with your two children, okay? You both obviously love your kids. Yeah, but. It would be like you saying, well, your kids, yeah, they're just adopted, though. They, you know, it, it can't be so ignorant. That yeah. is and that makes no. So I look at it this way. Right. So I spend as much I spend more time talking about Ozzy than either of my two kids. And I, obviously I didn't he didn't come out of my uh, out of my butthole. He, we didn't we, we didn't give birth to Ozzy. I adopted Ozzy. Right. Of course. And at the same time, I couldn't love Ozzy anymore. It, when Ozzy eventually leaves this world. I'll be crying for days. I'll be crying for weeks, months. It'll be super devastating to me. So I don't understand the whole when somebody's mindset about, oh, you have to give birth to love somebody or to love a child. Oh, it's different because you adopted that. It's so that's so shallow and so ignorant and so stupid. On every, and I don't want to rag on somebody who's a friend of yours, I guess, but I no, am. No, no, I don't. I, I don't mean, have any, I mean, I, I didn't. It's like, I, how I, does somebody I, fucking say that to you without you slapping the ugly off their face, right? Like, you was, know, it was very tempting. Yes, my God, I, I can't believe it. Look, I, I'll tell you right now, if I wasn't so old, I would have had more kids or adopted or done. I love kids. Kids make me happy. Animals make me happy. Adoption is, it's a, it, the unfortunate part is the country, our country has made it, you know, you can get a driver's license, you can give birth, very little has to be done for that to occur. But to adopt a child, to want to do the right thing and adopt a child, you've got to do fucking handstands and hoops for like months and years. And it's a real shame because look, I know that there's predators out there. I know that there's bad people out there, but at the same time, there's a lot of good people. There's a lot of really good people and all they want is a child. And Jeff, I will break kayfabe with this. When Jennifer felt the maternal instinct and wanted to have children, it was determined that she had fibroids and it was essentially clogging up her fallopian tubes. And it was very difficult. And she went through a lot of pain as a young person. We had been married a year and she had to go through, she had to take a medicine that put her through artificial menopause all within literally our first year of marriage, first year and a half of marriage. And she was, there was a lot of crying on her part. There was a lot of pain on her part. This went on for quite a long time. And we were trying to conceive. We had no luck. And I was really fortunate, Jeff. I was working in a restaurant in New York City. Server or manager? I was, (laughs) there's like a dramatic pause at this stage when I say, yeah. I was working as a manager and we had a bunch of regulars that would come in on a daily basis. And, uh, one of them was the top fertility specialist in the entire country at the time, Dr. Victor Raniak. So really great guy, always got him his table. And, uh, I just casually mentioned to him that my wife and I were trying to conceive, but I had said that she had these fibroids 
and we were having trouble. He said, you come see me. So, you know, again, I, I don't like doctors. I don't know much about doctors, but this was a rich person, Dr. Jeff. So immediately we made an appointment. We went and saw him really just, I got to tell you, I just love this guy too. Just so nice. And he said, he goes, so he goes, this is what we're going to do. This would have been the year 2000. He said, you're going to try to conceive for three months. And if you don't, the good news is I will be able to take care of this. There's, there should be no concern on your part that you're going to be able to get pregnant because it'll happen. He goes, if it doesn't happen naturally, I will be able to do it. But you have one fallopian tube, which is completely open. So we went home and I got to tell you, so people will talk and there's a lot of jokes going to be made about this, no doubt. But when you're trying to conceive and have a baby, it's not romantic. It's not super pleasurable. It's a lot of as quickly as you can and as much as you can. <laughs> like, it isn't like, you know, you're not sitting there. There's no buildup. It's like, you know. Just can we do it five times today? It, you know, each one will be two minutes, whatever it is. And then you did not like, get out the uh, the Cavassier and uh... no, exactly. There was no romance. There was no Cavassier. There was no massages. It was literally like, okay, we got to do this again, right? So we did, and this would all happen during the the time when she's ovulating. So we went through, and it was a period. I don't know, four days, something like that. I forget exactly what the length, the time was, but we did this day in and day out, and then she would always stay in bed. She would prop up her, uh, her bottom half and uh, with, with pillows. Very, very I, carefully worded there. I appreciate that. I didn't know. I didn't know where to go with that. True. I was, <laughs> here, I was like, I didn't know what to say. So part of her, her needed to be in the air. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> Certain parts needed to be more elevated than the rest. And I would then wait on her hand and foot. And this would occur before she went to work in the morning, so really early morning, then she would come home for lunch, and then this would occur at night. So this was, you know, multiple times. So we did it a lot. First month came and went, period showed up. She's not pregnant, right? Second month came, period showed up. But I got to tell you, it, 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 it's heartbreaking. It's, it's heartbreaking, not, it, not so much for me, but for a woman, I think it truly is heartbreaking. And I understand it as well. It's why, why it would be heartbreaking. And, uh, she was really sad, you know, and, and I've got lots of friends that were either pregnant and in miscarriage or, you know, just couldn't get pregnant. It's I think what that does to a person, what it does to a person's psyche is just really, really devastating. So third month came along and it was like, holy shit, she's pregnant. Right. Like we were so excited when it occurred. And I'll, I'll never forget the moment when we took the test and it came forth that she was pregnant and that she was able to conceive. And we celebrated. I remember. I took off the weekend and we went out and did some stuff and it was just so exciting. So flash forward to three years later, two and a half, two and three quarter years later. And, uh, the doctor had said that, well, the first thing you want to do is if you are going to have another child within the first year, consider, consider conceiving because fallopian tubes are open. You're able to get pregnant. This is all good. So give that a thought. And, uh, I guess Zach being uh, in first time parent, Zach being a handful, it was like, we'll wait a little while. Right. So fast forward three years later, two and a half years later, first shot with Zoe. We know exactly when it occurred. My wife got pregnant again. My ex-wife got pregnant again. So that, that was a great thing. So the struggle is out there, Jeff. And uh, we had struggles in conceiving. Luckily we were able to come over those. You did something that is, I think arguably the most selfless act and that you married a woman that had two children and, and 
two children, we should say, Jeff, in their teen years, which are not the easiest of all years. And uh, it, it takes it takes a special person to successfully uh, do something like that. And for everybody that's out there that's listened to us, and I got a couple of messages privately, you know, regarding this, I guess, you know, people didn't want to share out there. But to everybody that's that's thinking of adopting and it, it, however you're doing, keep that bond with your wife extremely close and don't give up hope and do whatever you can. And, and I'm a firm believer, Jeff, and I say it all the time. Attitude is everything. If you've got a positive attitude, you'll dictate really how your life is going to go. Just know nothing's going to be perfect in this whole process of trying to adopt. But you've got friends, Jeff. I've got friends. Steve shared with us a great story. And I told him that story on the Patreon of my friend Ben and his wife who went over to China to get a baby. He couldn't love this child as if he had given birth to this child. That's how much he loves her. His posts on Facebook every day is him and his daughter, and she's got to be seven or eight years old now. So this isn't something new. This is love, and love doesn't know whether you're adopting or it's your own child. You know, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. You know, I, I mentioned that my wife has a a friend that she and her husband had adopted two girls, uh, I believe, from China. And I mentioned one one of the girls with special needs. I was incorrect. I want to clarify that she had uh, hearing difficulties. And uh, when they adopted her, they gave her a cochlear uh, implant in her ear and, uh, you know, doing fine now and stuff like that. But, you know, one of the things about when you're a, a parent that is having, whether it's trouble conceiving, uh, whether it's just that, you know, it, it just hasn't happened for whatever reason and there's no medical reason, it just hasn't happened. And you sit there and you think, wow, any fucking idiot can have a child, you know? Yep. I mean, how many people do you yep. know? that are complete fucking douchebags and horrible, whether it's a horrible mother, a horrible father, horrible family, whatever. And you keep fucking pumping out the kids, you know, and it doesn't get better. You don't start treating them better because you want, you know, you're on your fifth kid and you got people out there that are perfectly great and willing to have a child and would love to have a child. And for whatever reason, it's just not happening. And I sit there and think, I, I used to think to myself, what the fuck is wrong with me? You know, why, why the hell am I not having, you know, uh, haven't I, why haven't I met someone that, you know, wants to have a child or, or that I want to have a child with, you know? Uh, and quite frankly, uh, I would have been fine having a child with the first Mrs. Bowdrin, who now is she who shall not be named. And thank God I didn't. But at the time, I would have. Now, at some point when I was married to the second Mrs. Bowdrin, at the time that that marriage ended, I said to myself, thank God I didn't have a child with that, you know, that person, because there's a lot of reasons, but it just wouldn't have been a good thing. I would have loved to have had a child with Kim because she's a wonderful mother. She's a wonderful wife and partner. And, you know, it just when we met each other, you know, we were uh, a little bit older. Uh, I'm trying to think now. I'm, I was ooh, 38. So she would have been like, you know, in her mid thirties, cause she's a few years younger than me. And, you know, it, it got to be kind of a running joke about, oh, let's, uh, let's have a child. And she's like, nope, nope. I already went through that. I don't want to go through that again. And then I used to joke and say, why don't we go to, to China or Korea or some other country and adopt a child? And she'd be like, really, seriously, do you know how old we are now? And, you know, but it's, we weren't saying it to be malicious. It was kind of a personal joke between the two of us. I still say that to her when we're walking through Publix and we hear some kids 
screaming, you know, we'll go, oh, come on, honey, let's go get us a baby. No, no, we're done with that. You know? Jeff, let me interrupt you for a second, but there's a lot of truth to what you said. And so when I said that I love kids, if I was younger, now being single also, right, I would maybe try to have kids. And it's because I love it. It's not so much the diaper changing at 3 a.m. or the constant crying. It's the fact that it's like when Tony Randall had kids and he was like 130 years old. <laughs> I right? knew you were gonna, That's the first thing I thought of was fucking Tony Randall, man. How, how, His kid's how a teenager. He's going to be 82. You exactly. Know? How So go out and throw the ball with your kid, Tony, right, from your wheelchair and your colostomy bag. How selfish is it? When older people, and this is controversial, when older people have children, because Tony Randall did it for himself, that child never knew his father. Tony Randall had the kids and then died because he was so old. He had kids in his 70s, I think. That is so selfish. I don't care. I just just saw a picture recently of Rod Stewart, uh, who's, I'll be kind, Rod Stewart's at least in his 70s. And his youngest child is like, I want to say like maybe 12, 13 years old. You know, and I'm like, and I know Rod Stewart loves the kid and I'm sure he's, you know, he certainly has the means to to have that kid taken care of for his whole life. But like you said, is that kid, uh, you know, going to be able to go out and, and do things, uh, you know, with his dad? He's going to go if he joins a baseball team or in case of Rod Stewart, Rod Stewart's a big uh, fan of football and soccer. Is yep. Rod Stewart going to be able to go out there and he's going to his kid's going to have a, a, you know, a match where he's playing with kids his own age and there's going to be all these parents that are in their thirties, maybe early forties. And there's a grandpa Rod showing up, but he's the kid's father. That's going to be kind of awkward, you know? So I, I see your point there. Grandpa Rod with a Walker as he's <laughs> trying to get on the field. I just, I, it, to me, it's the height of doing the most selfish thing. And you could say, well, you know, it, you're, you're leaving a legacy and, and your wife will be alive. Cause of course they're always much younger than these old guys having babies. So that your wife will be alive. And yes, financially, Rod Stewart's children. But is money any substitute for a great father, Jeff? Absolutely not. No, but, you know, uh, and let me make clear, I'm not talking and I'm sure Barry's not talking about, you know, a couple that's in their late 30s and they've been trying to have kids their whole lives and it just hasn't worked out. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a child that kind of appears unexpectedly, you know, I. I got a call from my friend Colleen, I, I remember, who was like, at the time, I want to say she was, might have been like around 41 or 42. And she goes, you're not going to believe it. And I, and she told me, and I said, oh, he slipped one past the goalie, huh? You know. <laughs> and, and when you're in your early 40s, maybe you're not thinking, yeah, this is going to happen. So, uh, it, But early 40s too, Jeff. I had, so Zoe was, so I was 40 when I had Zoe. And that that's, it, it's, I think I, depending on who you are, obviously, but I think forties is still fine. But for me, it's when you're in your sixties and your seventies. Oh yeah. No, that's completely it's like, come yeah. on. It's There's not a little right. Bit of selfishness there. Yes. Yeah. No forties. I'm all on board thirties, forties, and a case could even be made at some point in the fifties if you're in good health, et cetera. But, you know, again, I, I think, you know, I, I think about my daughter and I think about you know, like conversations we've had. And I know in my heart, as it was for you, Jeff, exactly the way it was for you when you danced with your daughter at your, at her wedding, that was like everything for you, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So So how, how is it that, you know, somebody in their seventies is going to give birth. They're never going to be able to dance with their child at their wedding or something. It's just, it's insane to me. Yeah. And so once again, we would just want to know, or let Steve Walker know, 
how much this letter meant to us. And uh, I know you're doing a great job as a parent, Steve, uh, you and your uh, and your wife. And so big thumbs up from uh, us here at Breaking Kayfabe with Bowden and Barry. So, Barry, I know you like me. You love a good book, don't you, Bear? Oh, I love books. We, we don't talk. You know, we, we have uh, people like our friend Greg Klein recently, Ian Douglas, uh, in the past that, uh, you know, we've uh, talked about their books. So they've been uh, very, very good advertisers with us, and we always appreciate that. But sometimes, Barry, you run across a book, and you just, like, want to run to the store to pick it up. You want to go to your Amazon account and, and order this book. Barry, right now, as we speak, I am texting you this book, and then I'm going to read the description of the book. The book is called, Barry, let me know when you get it. All right. All right. I just heard a text. Hold on, Jeff. That's what's called dead air, by the way, Bear. Oh, yeah. Okay. So (laughs) the name of the the book uh, is by Carlton Mellick III, okay? It's called The Haunted Vagina. The Haunted Vagina, which, by the way, uh, gets three and a half stars on Goodreads. And this is the description, Barry. It's difficult to love a woman whose vagina is a gateway to the world of the dead. Steve is madly in love with his eccentric, <laughs> I guess so, his eccentric girlfriend, Stacy. Unfortunately, their sex life has been suffering as of late because Steve is worried about the odd noises that have been coming from Stacy's pubic region. She says that her vagina is haunted. She doesn't think it's that big a deal. And now, let me, before I stop, let me just stop it. Would that be a game changer, Barry? It's not a big deal. Come on. You're out, you're out there in the dating world now. You're, you're divorced from uh, the former Mrs. Rose. That's if right. someone has odd noises coming, and I don't mean those noises. I mean odd noises. I'm not talking about the PFs, okay? I'm talking yeah. about odd noises. Would that be a game changer for you, Mr. Rose? No, I'm intrigued, man. I want to know what the fuck's going on down there. Okay. She says, like back to the review, she says that her vagina is haunted. She doesn't think it's that big a deal. Steve, on the other hand, completely disagrees. <laughs> when a living corpse climbs, I love this review. When a living corpse climbs out of her during an awkward night of sex, Steve lear- Stacy learns that her vagina is actually a doorway to another world. She persuades Steve to climb inside of her to explore wow. the strange new place. First of all, uh, if Steve is climbing inside of her, apparently uh, Stacy may have a problem. Uh, <laughs> be there weren't enough stitches put in. Uh, and wow. There's a bit of a gap there. Uh, you know. So, uh, uh, but once inside, Steve finds it difficult to return, especially when he meets an oddly attractive woman named Fig. Her name is Fig, who lives within the lonely, haunted world between Stacy's legs. Barry. Are you with me? Do you, do you have to get this book? I absolutely have to get this book. I am actually. And by I, the way, this is this book is a complete shoot. This is not something I've made up because I actually went on Amazon. I'm sure the people at Amazon are like, what the fuck is this guy looking up the haunted? But it is available and it is out there. Wow. I w- this is I something was a- like Jeff Zinger. We haven't talked about Jeff Zinger lately. The shit that Jeff Zinger posts. I bet you Jeff Zinger has this fucking book. Jeff Singer, he's already auctioning off the screen rights for this book. Uh, that's how much he's into it. As you were speaking, I was actually taking the screenshot that you sent me, and I was texting it to somebody else. I'm like, look at this fucking book, man. Yeah. This is uh, unbelievable. So let me ask you a question, Jeff. And you're not a guy that, you know, you drink a little, little scotch here and there. Uh, but a yeah. little vodka. You're not a, a, a guy that partakes in uh, pharmaceuticals or things like that. 
what kind of drugs is this guy on to be able to come up with a story like this? Um, it's got to be something uh, with the <laughs> quantity and consistency of the stuff that I took when I had cancer. That's all I'm saying. That's, you know, I think you're right. You become, because I bet you that night that I took that shit, I bet you if I'd sat down and writing, started writing a book, I bet you the haunted vagina would have come out of, uh, you know, uh, off my uh, typewriter or my uh, typewriter or my uh, computer typewriter. screen. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, the haunted vagina, I will post a link to this fine book. And again, it is available on Amazon. And if someone gets this book before I do, like Jeff Zinger, I am waiting. And the people on the Facebook page at Breaking Cafe with Bowdrum Mary, see, this is, the quality, this is the kind of quality content. Who else is on, doing this? Yeah, you don't get this on people that just stick to wrestling. Thank you. That's Although great. McAdam, he might have this book too. But I will expect a review so that people in our group can say, by God, this is the kind of stuff you don't get just anywhere. The Haunted Vagina, Carlton Mellick Third. Oh, Bear, I can't wait to get a hold of this book. Well, Jeff, I, just so you know, I'm now trying to get Carlton Mellick III for our show. So yes. No, no. That would be an interesting conversation. I want to discuss about how the guy enters her vagina. <laughs> it, the entire body, because that woman's got, you know, she's got other issues besides just having the fact that her vagina is haunted. Barry, as we begin to wrap up this fine episode, Breaking Cape Able Battered and Barry, First of all, Barry, we are want the fans out there to know that we and Ernest will continue to try to get the writer of The Haunted Vagina on this fine podcast. The great Brian Last from up in Last Mansion has told me, I want this to happen. He's loosening the purse strings. We are going to try to have Carlton Mellick III come on and discuss this book. I feel we have to, Barry. So I love that idea, first off, that you're saying that. So what you're saying is we shouldn't take no for an answer. <laughs> so with there that, are some things in life where when there's a no, you 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 say okay, fine, I'm out. There's other things like when you're dealing with a haunted <laughs> vagina, we push forward. So his email address is public record. It is oh public my. knowledge. It is on his website. I will put a link to his website in our Facebook group. If you strongly, after reading about his books, want to see him interviewed on our show, and let's be honest, this is really the perfect podcast for a book, an author, The Haunted Vagina, you're going to want to reach out to him. And all you have to say is, Mr. Mellick, enjoy your works. Would really like to hear you on the Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry podcast. Jeff, can we get in this, this whole write-in campaign where people will deluge Carlton Mellick third? to be able to get them on the show? Can this happen? Well, I'm only going to say that there are a few members of our group that we may have to pull the reins back on because, you know, I'm not going to mention any names, but there are a couple of people that may send uh, approximately 4,000 emails uh, <laughs> in a day. Uh, we do have those people. Though, that being said, I will remind you that Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. On behalf of our producer, the sweet man, Luke Kippelman, and my co-host, Barry Rose, and the haunted vagina. I am your host, Jeff Bodren. Blue, take it home, buddy.